Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, in this episode, we will be focusing on chapter two, which is the chapter on brain and behavior. And I am very happy to be joined by two guests who are also instructors of the introductory psychology class and also use the My Psychology textbook. First, we have uh, Dr. Kelly Barnes. She is a professor of psychology at San Jacinto College down in Houston, Texas. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And we also have Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer at Arizona State University in their Department of Psychology in Tempe, Arizona. Hi, Ava. Hi, Andy. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 2, Brain and Behavior. The chapter starts with a couple of stories of legendary events in the early history of psychology, about Phineas Gage and Paul Broca, that set the stage for the extensive study of the functions of various parts of the brain. It then describes microscopic activity within the brain, specifically the activity of neurons, including different types of neurons, like sensory neurons and motor neurons, and the various parts of each neuron and the role that each part plays. Next, the chapter zooms out a bit to consider different parts or regions of the brain, like cerebellum, limbic system, cerebral cortex, or hemispheres, for example, as well as the idea of plasticity, or the ability of the brain to adapt its structure or function after injury or life experience. Next, the chapter reviews the nervous system and the endocrine system, and finally, it describes the technology that allows us to view the brain, like EEGs, MRIs, fMRIs, and other techniques. So, Kelly, I'll start with you. What's one of the most important topics within Chapter 2 that you wanted to talk about? I think one of the chapters that I find most important is the idea of how the brain sends messages. And so the the part in the beginning of chapter two, where it goes through the parts of the neuron to help you to understand how these cells, these specialized cells that are in our brain and throughout our body allow for communication of messages. Yeah, it's definitely important. And it's so foundational to the whole, the whole field of psychology. I'm glad you're bringing that up. Ava, thoughts about neuronal communication, messages being sent? You know, this this can be so overwhelming for students that there's a real danger of plowing through here and just memorizing terms. And I see students running around with uh, flashcards and things like that, and then they're they're missing this incredibly important thing that Kelly's talking about, which is that this little nerve cell, this neuron, is really a building block for everything that we experience, everything that, you know, makes us human, all of those behaviors and mental processes that we talked about in chapter one. And so, you know, the neuron is that first step. So as we're talking about neurons and and, and communication between neurons, it might be helpful to refresh uh, students' memories about about the neuron and its various parts. Kelly, can you give us a quick rundown of, 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 of those terms? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about neurons, what we're talking about are brain cells or cells within our nervous system, right? So the neurons in our body have these same parts as well. And we've got specialized structures within these cells that allow them to do this really cool thing, which is sending messages, this idea that we've been talking about. And so on one end of the neuron, if we can kind of think it is laid out, uh, we've got this structure that gets incoming messages. And those messages are coming in in the forms of chemicals. And that's that part of the neuron called the dendrite. And that's 
connecting to this part of the neuron called the cell body, which is going to integrate these incoming messages. And it's also got all the life support stuff for the cell, like its nucleus. And then as we go down from there, we've got this long protruding specialized structure called an axon. And that's this long part of the cell. I mean, long for a cell, right? We're still talking about teensy, teensy, teensy. But it's this special structure, the axon, that allows us to send messages from one part of the brain to another or from one part of the nervous system to something else in the body. And so this structure allows for the, the transmission of electrical signals. And then once we get to the end of that, that's where we release these special types of chemicals called neurotransmitters. And you might have heard of things like dopamine or serotonin or epinephrine. If you've heard those words, those are just special types of chemicals that neurons release, and they're called neurotransmitters. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's something about that the part of that section of the book where, where we get to the neurotransmitters, and we start the, the book starts mentioning some terms that the students may be at least somewhat familiar with, uh, serotonin and dopamine and epinephrine. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that every student comes in knowing exactly what all those things are, but those are probably like at least semi-familiar terms. And I think, with at least with some of my students, it's, it's nice to see them make a connection between those substances that they may have heard of but not fully understood. They may have something to do with medication that they've taken or someone else that they know has taken. And, and, and to actually understand, oh, that's, that's a neurotransmitter. That is something that travels, that's, a, that's something that is part of these messages that travels throughout the brain, throughout the body, and affects my behavior, my, my mood perhaps, my thoughts, my feelings, and, and to sort of put that together, take, take, a, take a topic or at least a few terms that were kind of mysterious to them, perhaps, you know, kind of a little bit unknown to them and make them more, make a connection to something more understandable for them. And, and understanding the roles of those neurotransmitters in this message sending process. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like with the, the with both sides of signaling, with electrical signaling, with the chemical signaling aspects of, of neuronal communication, it's so abstract. But once you start to see, hey, look, this is what happens. This part of your brain is going to send this message and it's going to go to your spinal cord and it's going to go to your muscle and that's going to release this chemical and your muscle is going to contract. Well, sit here and wiggle your toe, right? This neuron is, you know, however many feet long going from your spinal cord down to your toes and you, you're experiencing this movement now, right? That's, that's the product of all of this electrical and chemical stuff with the scary names that you've maybe heard because somebody took a medication that affected one of these things. It's, it's you, it's you moving, it's you thinking, and it's so tangible and so real, but it seems so abstract and distant at first pass. Yeah, exactly. And I think something similar happens, at least for some students, when we talk about the myelin sheath, mm -hmm. and and um, and especially when we connect it to uh, multiple sclerosis, MS, right. mm -hmm. and they start to understand like, oh, like, there's like a an actual, like, identifiable, understandable reason why, why MS would happen. Right. Uh, it just, it, there's something, there's something kind of nice about the demystification that can take place when this starts to happen because they, they, they're, they're familiar with MS. And the neat thing that I tell students is, hey, when you go home now during, you know, during the fall semester, if it's Thanksgiving or something, you know, you can really show your family what you know, because now you've got these great terms to attach to these experiences that now you understand better. And so it's a great way of, you know, getting smart and sounding smart because you have those, those, those terms now that's no longer abstract. You understand how these things work and you know the scientific name for them. 
And that helps you, you know, remember this stuff. Absolutely. And, and, and getting smart, there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of um, almost empowerment. Absolutely. Another thing that I've had is students who've had family members have other types of injuries or accidents like spinal cord injuries. And those are so common. I, I checked the statistics on this because I remember a student bringing this up and I had wanted to double check the numbers on this, but it's somewhere over 17,000 individuals in the U.S. each year have a spinal cord injury, a new, a new spinal cord injury. And so when you start talking to somebody, say a loved one who's in a hospital, somebody's been in a, you know, a car crash or has had a fall, those are some of the leading causes for spinal cord injury. And then you're hearing a doctor tell you, well, they've damaged the nerves in their spinal cord and those connect to these muscles and you can say as a as a student who's maybe taken this class okay so what does that mean this means maybe we're going to have some sensory issues maybe we're going to have some motor issues and you can you can process that information in a really traumatic time uh, when you're really scared about your loved one you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're not going to get overwhelmed by the words that you're hearing. It's something that you take from this class and hopefully this doesn't happen to your loved one. Hopefully you don't have to go through this, but you know how to you know how to understand that language, that doctor speak, that medical lingo that comes at you when you're you're not sitting there ready to translate that. You you know you you can just process that a little more efficiently. Definitely, definitely. Ava, do you have another topic from chapter 2 that you wanted to to focus on? So it's not so much a, a new observation, just a continuation of the conversation we're having here about the organization of all of this and the fact that these neurons that we're talking about are, in fact, sort of the smallest building blocks. Then we look at, you know, we zoom out and we look at the brain, this organ that is essentially in charge of everything that we do and everything that we experience. And then we look at on a more systemic level where are these like different connections, right? So we have these fast connections connections from the brain to the body through neurons. And we have these slower hormonal connections in the endocrine system from the glands, you know, through the bloodstream. So to really sort of understand that when you get what's happening at that neuronal level, you know, what's happening as an electrical impulse passes through that, that nerve, that neurotransmitters connect to neurons through that synapse, that suddenly you zoom out and you have this incredibly complex system that then you start to understand, you know, we move to sort of that sensory and, and motor connection, right? That we have these experiences, these senses coming in, and then we respond to them. And our, you know, our brain is now controlling our motor function. And so the reason that that's important is not just to understand how this works, but when students are studying, it helps them get a sort of meta- image of what's happening. And so there's a deeper understanding. When we get to the memory chapter later on in the textbook, one of the things that we learn is that, you know, superficial memorization doesn't really work very well. You know, that information doesn't stay. But when we really understand the things that we're talking about, it sticks. And it's actually more satisfying. It's more persistent the deeper we process that information. So understanding how our nervous system is put together and how it communicates really helps us understand how it works. Mm -hmm. Adding some meaning to it. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will continue talking about Chapter 2, the brain and behavior chapter of the My Psychology textbook.
The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system welcome back we are here discussing chapter two of the my psychology textbook with Dr. Kelly Barnes, who's a professor of psychology at San Jacinto College in Houston, and Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. So there's another topic from chapter two that I'd like to bring up just because I think it's important and interesting, and that is the topic of plasticity. And again, uh, just, to, just to refresh your memory, plasticity is the ability of the brain to adapt its structure or function in response to either uh, experience or damage that it has uh, that it has gone through. Plastic, I mean, the, the, materi it's the material of plastic, which is bent and shaped into so many different things in our day-to-day -day lives, I'm glad that's part of the the, the actual term because it's um, with you know with students you can you can think of so many different ways that plastic can be shaped and used and it's it's uh, and they're, they're all around uh, all around all of us uh, every day. So I think students can sort of take advantage of the language there and kind of understand like, oh yeah, like the brain can be sort of molded or shaped or changed by experience, not to the extent that plastic, uh, the actual material can, but but along those lines to some extent. I, I like talking with students about how about all of the different kinds of things that can uh, produce plasticity in the brain. There are sections in the book about plasticity after brain damage, which I think is probably the most obvious one to students. If it, you know if someone experiences a car accident or some other some other uh, sort of injury to the brain, about how the uninjured parts, the unaffected parts of the brain, can often to some extent take take over for the injured parts or kind of become more versatile or flexible in what they do, especially if the person is is younger. Younger people tend to have more plasticity in their brains. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But not just the brain damage stuff, but also just like life experiences, like being part of a of a particular cultural group. Living in poverty can change the brain in this way of uh, plasticity that we're talking about. The language that you speak can can affect the structure and function of your brain. And even the 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 section in the book about psychotherapy, and this may be because I'm a clinical psychologist and I I, I do psychotherapy, but it's 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 I find it fascinating that that research on Psychotherapy shows that successful psychotherapy changes the brain. It's it's medications are not the only, not the only response to psychological problems that actually changes the brain of individuals. Yeah, I I love this topic, and it's one of those things where, especially when you think about the potential for plasticity and how that changes over development, I think that's that's really fascinating to me as a mom. The the, the brain is changing so much, and it's not finished when a child is born. And this plasticity that babies show, that kids show, 
persists, though the the degree to which we're capable of changing may change over time. Um, it never fully goes away. And I think that's something that's so cool about this chapter. And for my students, because I get students at so many different stages of their life at a community college, when you come to this topic, it's it's kind of validating in a sense, like, hey, you're learning something, you're changing, you're experiencing new things, whether you're coming into class at 18, whether you're coming into class at 45, your brain's ready for this challenge. It might be a little bit different, but it's not in, it's not incapable of this task. Your, your brain is designed to change. It's designed to, to handle the new experiences that life throws at you. And I think that's just such a, a cool and important idea from this chapter. Yeah. And it's so contrary to the, to the popular idea of your brain, uh, people's brains being wired in a certain way. A lot of students come in talking about, I think my brain is just wired that way, or my kid's brain is just sort of wired that way. Or and with this sort of implication, at least that the way I hear it, there's an implication there that it's unchangeable that it's just sort of hard wired and introducing to students the idea that it's actually a two-way street. I mean, your brain is wired a certain way, if you want to use that terminology, but experience can change the way your brain is quote unquote wired. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to overstate the fact. I don't want to say, oh, we'll just go out and, you know, have a couple of little experiences and your brain will be totally different. It's not, it's not that easily changed, but but it is changeable. And I think that can be very liberating to some students to think like, I can actually like through experiences that I have, like change my actual brain. We tend to think of damage as sort of physical damage, like traumatic brain injury, that kind of thing. Mm. But the plasticity, particularly in childhood, actually means that we can damage our brains in, in, in other ways through life experiences, for example, deprivation. So that when you have children in institutional settings and orphanages, so I've done a lot of human rights work in developing countries. And when we go to institutions where children have been either abandoned or post-war situations, things like that, those children have a significant amount of stimulus deprivation in their lives that actually starts to change their brain. And these children experience a form of brain damage with sort of like the negative aspects of plasticity, which you then to some extent can correct by removing them from that setting. And there's lots of research out there on just like how much plasticity you, you, as children get older, the damage happens and then you take them out of that setting because their plasticity is decreasing with time, just how much of that function can be regained over time. So we actually use this research to argue against institutionalization. Yeah, I can see why. I can see why. Thanks for sharing that uh, that experience of yours. Yeah, the, the material in this chapter hopefully can, can help students understand some of the events that happen in their real lives, whether it's to them or to, to relatives or friends. And there are a couple of examples in the book about the, the actress Aubrey Plaza and the, the uh, football player Teddy Bruschi who had strokes and how it affected their lives. But I, I wonder if either of you has a, a story to tell about, about uh, a personal experience with, with any sort of brain injury or brain event. Yeah, that's something that's that's impacted my family. Uh, before I was born, my great aunt, who we were very close with, she lived right down the street from me, uh, had had a stroke, and the stroke affected her control of the muscles in her face. So that by the time I was born, she had a hemifacial paralysis, and she couldn't control the muscles on one half of her face. And so, as a child, this was something that was was really kind of 
confusing for me. I knew, you know, something was different about my aunt. Her face looked different from other people's. And so when I was maybe around five years old, I remember having a conversation with her where she sat me down and she tried to explain everything to me. And she had explained, you know, that what had happened was she had had a stroke and part of her brain stopped working. And as a result of that, you know, some of the muscles in her face, she couldn't control them anymore. So she couldn't really smile the same way that other people did. And I remember being a young girl and just being very confused by this because my understanding of, of injuries at the time was, well, if you got hurt, you got better. You know, if you broke a bone, you get a cast put on it and then that bone is going to heal and you can use your arm again. And so to, to learn that sometimes, especially as you get older, the brain's not going to be able to recover in the same way was was something that really fascinated me. And I didn't know psychology or neuroscience was a thing at the time, but I just remember being so struck by this, that this could happen and your brain would do this and then it wouldn't work in the same way. Yeah, what, what a powerful experience for a young kid to, to see you know, a close relative like that and then, and then start to wonder about, about the, the biology behind it. And it sounds like it was a, an important early step in your, in your uh, eventual career. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It definitely connected me to these ideas that I've, I've found fascinating for my whole life. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you so much to our two guests uh, who have been with us for this discussion of Chapter 2, the Brain and Behavior Chapter of, of the My Psychology textbook. They are, again, Dr. Kelly Barnes, who's a professor of psychology at San Jacinto College in Houston, and Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer at Arizona State University in their Department of Psychology in Tempe, Arizona. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.